the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Well, you've probably heard the news. The number of Americans living below the poverty line is now at its highest level in some 50 years. That, according to a recent report released by the U.S. Census Bureau, finds that more than 46 million people in the United States um, have... uh, qualified for that uh, uh, dubious position of being under the poverty level. The new figures are the third increase in three years and nearly 1% increase from 2009. The federal government also says that median incomes in the United States fell over 2% last year. The U.S. apparently has one of the highest poverty rates in the world among developed nations. I thought, you know, when we talk about poverty and the poverty level, uh, what exactly does that mean? How do we define all of this? And when the Census Bureau says that America has the highest poverty rates in the world among developed nations, uh, that's got to beg a question for definition, too. Well, with some insights, we brought in an expert. Robert Rector is a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He is considered one of the leading national authorities on the topic of the United States welfare system and poverty and um, has been recently dubbed the intellectual godfather of welfare reform by National Review editor Rich Lowry. And uh, Mr. Rector, great to have you on the program tonight. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Let's begin with some basic definitions. You know, when, when I hear the word poverty, I I have a vision in my mind, Robert, of similar to what uh, folks went through during the Great Depression. You know, the, the Dust Bowl people of Oklahoma making their way with all this stuff strapped in the side of their Model A into the state of California. Literally had no money, no resources, no food, no nothing. When we talk about poverty in America today... Is the picture that I just painted an accurate one? No, but the picture that you have is is what the average person has in mind when they hear uh, the government say there are 46 million poor people. They think about poverty as a, a family that's homeless or living in a decrepit shack with a hole in the roof, not having enough food to eat, maybe not being able to put clothes on your kids' backs. And when you look at the news media, when they run stories about poverty, they almost invariably present you with a homeless family or with a family that that has an empty refrigerator and so forth. 
And while those families that are in that type of severe hardship do exist, and we have to be very concerned about them, they are a very, very tiny, tiny portion of this 46 million people that are are ostensibly poor. In fact, only 1% of the poor are homeless. Now, what about food? Well, the U.S. Department of Agriculture runs a a survey of food consumption and hunger each year, and last year they asked poor parents, this 46 million group, poor parents, they asked them the following question. At any time during the previous 12 months, were your children ever hungry, even for a single day, because you didn't have enough food in the home or you didn't have enough money for food? You know what? 96% of poor parents said, my children were never hungry at all at any point over the 12-month period in the middle of of this severe, severe recession. Now, let me ask you an important question related to all of this, because I would imagine for folks that are filling out these surveys, I'd be a little bit hesitant uh, myself, quite frankly, Robert, to be uh, all that candid in some of my responses. I mean, are there cases where uh, parents are underreporting their circumstances because they just simply feel embarrassed by it all? I I don't really think so, because the survey asks a lot of other questions besides that. And the survey basically kind of tells us the same thing every year. And then there are other indicators that we'll talk about in the home. For example, um, when you look, we have surveys where you measure the actual food consumption and you compare the nutriment intake of poor children and upper middle class children. There, you can really have to struggle quite a bit to find any difference in the in the intake of vitamins and minerals and protein. They're all eating the same junk food, rich or poor. Kids still well, have uh, the sweet tooth. The same, <laughs> right, the same food. Uh, we even have surveys that go in and we take blood samples and we look for protein in the blood and, and things like that. And it, you don't find that poor people are generally particularly different than anybody else. If you look at, for example, the perce- the consumption of percentage of calories that come from protein, from carbohydrates, from fats, poor people look exactly the same as everybody else. We have another set of surveys that ask uh, poor these poor households what sorts of things they have in the home. And what this survey shows us is that 80% of poor people have air conditioning, two-thirds of them have cable TV, 75% of them have an automobile, a third of them have two or more automobiles, 50% of them have a computer in the home, Forty percent of them have internet access. A third of them have a, a widescreen plasma TV, and a quarter of them have a TiVo system. Okay, now that's the sorts of things you're just not going to make up, and and it's very consistent because we, as we look, even though the government kind of suggests that poor people aren't getting any better, year by year as we do that survey, 
the, the, the amount of things that the poor people have in their home goes up, largely as the cost of those commodities go down. I, I guess a lot of this then ultimately is very relative to what our point of reference is, and I want to talk about that when we come back. Because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, look, if you're Warren Buffett and your net worth suddenly plummets from, you know, the billions of dollars that you're kicking around with every day to just $10 million in the bank account, to you, that's probably poverty. Uh, to me, that's retirement. So is it relative and to what degree then do we adequately define what poverty means and can it really be true that the poverty situation is worse in the United States than any other so-called developed nation? Really? Or are we just living under a big illusion here? Delusion might be the better word. Robert Rector, Senior Research Fellow with the Heritage Foundation. The time out. Back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Robert Rector is with a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Now, Robert, as we define poverty, how much of this is all relative? I asked that question. We had a listener call in a moment ago, didn't want to be on the air, but said, you know, I consider myself at the poverty level, and I don't have all those things. I don't have a widescreen TV set. I don't have broadband Internet access at home. How can we say that people who are defined as under the poverty level in America have all those things. I don't. Well, the fact is, when you ask the public, Rasmussen just did a poll a few weeks ago, and he asked a very simple question. He said, look, if a person has adequate food for their family and has a reasonable place, apartment, or home to live in that's in reasonable condition, would you consider that person to be poor? And by a ratio of about six to one, people said, no, that individual isn't poor. And, And the reality is, by that standard, having a, a decent place to live in, having a sufficient nutritious food for your family, about four out of five poor people are simply not poor in any sense. And then they, ha- then you got to throw the the plasma TV and the computers and all of that on top of that. Um, the reality is that most people in the United States, when they hear the word poverty, are not thinking about relative poverty. They're thinking about the images that they see on TV, which are conventionally uh, homeless families, people living in an overcrowded trailer with the roof leaking, they're always images of rather significant deprivation. And trust me, now I realize that there are families like that in the United States, Um, but the average poor family and the bulk of people that are, are identified as poor don't live anything like that. And then might might reasonably say, well, how come census is saying that we have 46 million poor people? And the answer is in the way that they count poverty. Census says that a family is poor if it has a cash income over the course of one year uh, below $22,000 a year. However, and here's the catch, when they count income, the entire safety net is excluded. All welfare in the United States is excluded. Food stamps, earned income tax credit, Medicaid, public housing, none of those things are counted. What does that mean? Well, last year, the taxpayers spent $900 billion, close to a trillion dollars, 
on cash, food, housing, medical care for anti-poverty programs for poor and low-income Americans. When you divide that out, that comes to around $9,000 for each low-income American, none of which is counted by census when they calculate this poverty level. The missing money, talking about international comparisons, the missing money alone is greater than the gross national product of virtually every nation in the globe. So again, it really comes down to an issue of, of at what level do we consider or define poverty and, well, and, 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 and what yardstick we're using against it. Indeed. For, and basically, as I said, you know, look, the typical poor family has air conditioning, cable TV, has a computer in the house. If they've got kids, they've got an Xbox. They have a car. Here's a nice international comparison for you. The average poor American, now half of poor Americans live in standalone single family homes. 40% of them are in apartments. Only 10% of them are in, in mobile trailers. But the average dwelling of a poor American is about 40 to 50% larger than the average house or apartment in England. Not of poor English people but of every English person. It's about 50% larger than the average dwelling in France, in Germany, in Sweden, in Italy. Okay. Of course, more, more space doesn't necessarily mean more opulence, though. It doesn't, but it, it, it's a good... Uh, and it, that wouldn't be true in every indicator by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a very good indication that, that uh, the poor in the United States are very well-housed, I mean extremely well-housed, by international standards. Most of these houses and apartments in the U.S. are in good condition. Not all of them, but most of them are. When you have these comparisons about, oh, well, the United States has more poverty than other nations, this, again, is relative. This income standard that is used to judge poverty in the United States is higher than all the other nations, okay? So this is like having a hurdle race out in a track and field meet where the other nations are jumping three-foot hurdles, and the United States is jumping four-foot hurdles. And at the end of the race, the United States comes in a little bit behind, and people say, aha, see, the United States is a poorer hurdler, right? No. <laughs> the judge, the, 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 the test that you put the United States up against was, ha- was higher than the test that other nations have. Plus, that's compounded by the fact that in the United States and the United States alone, we don't we have all of this money in our system to assist poor people, but we don't count that in our statistics for either poverty or for inequality. Robert Rector, Senior Research Fellow with the Heritage Foundation. Robert, appreciate you taking some time to kind of bust out the numbers for us and give us a bit more uh, deeper understanding as to exactly how we define folks in America based on uh, the poverty line, on Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
perhaps heard the phrase made man. In the terms of many folks, they see that as somebody who was successful, independent, perhaps pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. But in the parlance of Italian crime families, it takes on an entirely different meaning. A made man is a wise guy, sealed by blood covenant, a member of La Cosa Nostra. There was a period of time in the 1980s and 90s when my guest today was just such a man. Incredible life story takes him from being a member of the Colombo crime family to being a member of the family of God, from being a good fella to a God fella. We're pleased to have with us today on the show, Michael Francese. Michael, welcome. Thank you, Craig. Good to be here. Let's get into the heart of your family. It is entirely unusual for someone like yourself who, during the course of your involvement in the Colombo crime family in New York in the 1980s and 90s, ultimately had five indictments, five trials. You spent seven years in jail, and yet here you are talking to me as opposed to taking a dirt nap. How is that even possible? Well, Craig, that's always the the first question I'm asked because, uh, you know, people are shocked and surprised uh, because normally you don't walk away from that life, especially publicly like I have and and not enter a witness protection program or, uh, you know, or anything else. But, you know, I always say there's a, there's a, a practical reason uh, for that and, and actually also, I should say, a spiritual reason practical reason is this. I mean, I spent 20 years in that life, uh, the last several at a very high level. I was a cop regime in, in the Colombo family. So I knew intimately well the mentality of the guys. I knew the modus operandi. I knew what they would do, what they wouldn't do. So, you know, having that knowledge, I was able to, you know, counteract anything that they might do um, because there were really no surprises. And uh, I was very diligent in that. I didn't take anything for granted. And, um, you know, I, I moved out of New York, and I was just very careful with, with my lifestyle. I stayed out of places I knew I shouldn't go. I didn't put a house in my name, no utilities. Um, I, I was very, very careful. And, you know, the FBI is, um, they're obligated if they hear things from their informants uh, that somebody's life in danger, whether they like you or not, they have to come and tell you. And, and I got, uh, you know, a few of those calls. So, I mean, that's the practical reason. And during all of that, uh, quite honestly, Craig, I just outlasted everybody. Just about everybody I know is either dead or in prison for the rest of their lives. So I outlasted people in that regard. And, of course, the second reason and and really the, the main reason for all of this is I believe God had a different plan and a purpose for my life. He's made that very, very clear to me over the last 15 years in the course that he's navigated for me. So, because I always say there's no blueprint, uh, you know, for walking away from that life. And I, I can't say that I was extremely confident that I was uh, survived. There was no cockiness or arrogance about it. I just felt this is what I needed to do. And and I was going for it. So, Was it a given from the very start that you would enter into this life, given the fact that your, your father, Sonny, was very high up within the Colombo family as well? Was this sort of the passing of the mantle? You know, yeah, it wasn't originally intended that way, but, uh, you know, certainly when I got into the life, and I, I guess I could say I proved, you know, to be, uh, you know, to be pretty be pretty capable. I mean, I was a good earner for the family, and I guess uh, they saw some leadership ability in me, and I was elevated to a high level. 
And uh, my father certainly was grooming me to take over the family because, you know, he had so many issues himself with a, with a 50-year prison sentence and constantly being on parole. It was very, very hard for him. He was handcuffed, uh, you know, to take over leadership. So, uh, you know, they wanted to do it through me. And that's, that's the place I was headed for, for sure, if I would have stayed in that life. Um, you know, I could have elevated to the top. And you actually went pretty high up within the Colombo crime family, didn't you? I mean, there are allegations that at one point you were earning somewhere between five to eight million dollars a week in vice. I mean, <laughs> Michael, that's better than most uh, companies on the Dow and Nasdaq. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Craig, I was I was fortunate. I, I mean, I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business, and I had kind of a head for business, so I went into different uh, areas uh, that the families had prior, you know, had been into prior to my uh, being involved. And uh, you know, I mean, I I had uh, a big territory. I mean, really, Long Island uh, was all mine. I mean, I I controlled that, and I controlled some places up and down East and Seaboard. And uh, Brooklyn, I had a very big stronghold. I started to move out into California and do some things. So, you know, I, I didn't set out saying, okay, I'm going to control all these territories. But just by virtue of the amount of money that I was bringing in and the amount of, uh, you know, men that I had under me, it was starting to become a, a pretty formidable force in that life. So it, it just happened. We think of many of the films down through the years. Uh, the Godfather in 1972, uh, Mario Puzo's book, uh, certainly The Goodfellows in the early 1990s. And I would imagine that you're asked frequently, how accurate are those depictions to the real lifestyle? Is that Hollywood glamour or do those kinds of things really happen? I mean, are, are guys getting killed on the streets because they're not uh, cooperating? Does that kind of stuff actually happen? Well, it does. You know, unfortunately, uh, you know, I, and I get asked this question, obviously, quite a bit about the movies and television shows. And, you know, to me, the greatest movie of all time about that life was The Godfather, you know, both one and two. And, and three, they kind of lost it a bit. But one and two were, you know, were great movies. I mean, uh, were they actual depictions of that life? No, because they were, they were basically fictional movies, but uh, done extremely well. But go to Goodfellas and Donnie Brasco, and, and they were pretty accurate portrayals of the life. I mean, I knew all those guys in, in, in both of those movies, and actually I was mentioned in Goodfellas. But uh, they were pretty accurate, you know. I mean, that's the street life, and a lot of the things that they, they captured the essence of that life in a great way. And it's, you know, not a good thing, but unfortunately, uh, you know, they were pretty realistic. What was life for you like growing up as a kid? Your father, as we mentioned, Sonny, was an underboss and enforcer within the Colombo crime family. Um, you grew up in this atmosphere. Obviously, early on, you really didn't know much else other than the life of crime. No, I didn't. I mean, I grew up in that uh, atmosphere. My dad originally didn't want this life for me. He wanted me to get an education, go on to school, be a professional. But I grew up in a different era. I grew up, uh, you know, when law enforcement tactics against organized crime were very different than they are today. Because today everything is very covert. They got a lot of informants, a lot of high-tech surveillance equipment. You know, a guy can be under investigation and not really know about it. But my dad was extremely high profile. He was a major target back in the 60s when I was a kid. And at that time, uh, he was under constant surveillance by at least nine or ten different law enforcement agencies all over Brooklyn, New York, Long Island. And each one of these agents had a car parked around my house 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
So, I mean, I grew up hating the police. I hated government. I hated law enforcement. My dad was my hero, and I looked at them as the enemy, trying to harass him and hurt our family. So I had several run-ins with them as a kid, and and I just grew up, uh, you know, with a really distorted point of view with respect to the government and law enforcement. I hated them. At the end of the day, though, in terms of your entrance and essentially following your father's footsteps, I mean, it was almost a, a fait accompli in the sense that um, uh, this was the life that you had known. That's the only life that you had ever known. And there's there's a sense, I think, of, of being a man's man, particularly when, when you look at the, the code of honor within La Cosa Nostra. Uh, yes, there's, there's some pretty vile, horrible things that take place. But at the same token, there's a tremendous sense of honor and respect and uh, and family comes before all else you know there is and it's uh, it's very attractive to you know somebody with uh, those aspirations that wants to be a, a man and you know i looked up to my father i mean i thought he had real qualities of uh, of what a man's man should be and i attributed that not only to him personally but because he was a part of that life so in in that regard the life became attractive to me because you know my dad exuded power and uh, you know he had influence over men i saw how he treated my mother i saw how people respected him and you know that's that's very appealing especially to a young man so you know, and, and, you know, people ask me now, what do I miss about the life? You know, is it the money and the power and all that? And, you know, honestly, Craig, I don't. You know, I'm, I'm pretty well, you know, uh, uh, happy with my life now. And it's not anywhere near what that used to be. But, you know, just this brotherhood, this, uh, this idea that, you know, you're with a group of men that, you know, have your back, which is, a, a, you know, a dynamic statement on the street. You know, wherever you go, you had people around you, and uh, and it's just a it's just a major, you know, high when you know that you got this brotherhood of men. There's nothing more powerful than that, and uh, and that was very powerful to me. It was a big allure for me getting into the life. And there's a huge piece of irony here too, though, wasn't there, Michael? In the sense that, in spite of the fact that we're aware, uh, largely from both film depiction as well as the news headlines, for that matter, uh, that the likes of an Al Capone back in Chicago in the 1920s or a John Gotti in the 1970s and 80s, yes, committed some pretty horrible crimes, did some terrible things, and yet had a modicum of respect. It was always fascinating to see the way uh, the dapper Don Gotti would, would walk around town and people would salute him and wave to him, and, and there, was, there was a sense of respect in spite of the fact that he had this reputation. Why is that? Well, remember, you know, again, this this power, this uh, this aura of power around you, this this feeling that you just command respect is is uh, is intriguing to people. I mean, you know, understand this. You know, in our neighborhoods, we we were gods. I mean, you know, John took care of the people in his neighborhood, and they looked up to him and they loved him. And, you know, the same with my dad, and the same with me in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. I mean, I, you know, we took care of the neighborhood. You know, we never had to worry about you. You you'd never worried about your daughter, your sister, your mother walking the streets at night. I mean, people wouldn't wouldn't dare to to come in and do anything that they shouldn't do. So within your base, so to speak, people really respected and loved you because we took care of our own. 
you know, and, and uh, I think that's very attractive. And, uh, you know, even in John's case, and, you know, look, I knew John well. I, I, don't, I don't think he was, you know, the best boss because he, he brought so much heat upon the family, which was not good at the time. But, uh, you know, and he, was a, he was a different kind of guy. Socially, I got along with him very well. But business-wise, he was very, very difficult to get along with. But, but uh, you know, it's, it's that sense of power. It's that sense of respect. I mean, it's, it's intriguing to people, and it is attractive. You know, and I see it now in my own life. I'm not part of that life anymore, but I speak to these young kids and these gangbangers, and they look up to me like, uh, you know, it's almost hero worship. And uh, that's something that I have to break through when I speak to them and try to, you know, get them to think properly and, and make the, the proper choices in their life. But, uh, you know, and the media is largely responsible for that. I mean, you, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people look up to guys like that. With me today is a former New York Mafia crime member, Michael Francese. His life is the subject of a new film called simply God the Father. More information on the web at GodTheFatherMovie.com. We'll take a brief time out and come back to more of our conversation with Michael Francese as this edition of Lifeline continues. Now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. On this edition, a very special guest, a very rare opportunity. You see it so often depicted in films. Folks that are familiar with movies like uh, The Goodfellas or The Godfather, aware of the allure of uh, the Italian crime syndicate, the mafia. You sometimes wonder, how real is all of this? Well, with me today is Michael Francesi, who is a real depiction of a real crime member, who went up through the ranks having taken a blood oath and it's ironic if you take a couple of steps back Michael and look at your life and realize that you got into the worst part of your life because of a blood covenant but at the end you were able to escape that life of crime and take on an entire new life because of a very different type of blood covenant let's talk a bit about what happened to you? How did you finally were, um, after quite a number of indictments, um, given a sentence? You spent seven years in jail. What happened? Well, yeah, I mean, as a result of, uh, you know, meeting a young woman, a young woman of faith who is now my wife of 29 years, um, I made a decision uh, to try to walk away from that life and, and uh, marry her and, and try to raise a family under some better conditions than, you know, my family had been under. Did Cammie know who you were and what you were into when you first met? You know, Craig, she really didn't. I mean, my wife was a, a young girl from Anaheim, California. She had no involvement whatsoever with uh, that lifestyle. You know, out in Anaheim, the, there's really no mob presence, and she was a dancer. 
you know, she was a young uh, Latin girl, so she, she really didn't know anything. I mean, she saw The Godfather once, but for her, that was a movie. It was a fictional movie, and she never, you know, associated that with any real-life person. And, um, you know, me coming from New York, I was the producer of the film, you know, and, and she looked at me that way, and she never gave thought to anything else. And, um, you know, people sometimes don't, don't really understand that, but, you know, not everybody. I mean, I've learned that from traveling across the country. Not everybody really even knows that the mob exists. They only know it from the media. But So she didn't know it. And, um, you know, but when I fell in love with her and I realized that she was a strong person of faith and that my life would never mix with hers, I made the decision to try to walk away. And, of course, you know, I, I've been totally engrossed in the life. I mean, I've had four indictments up to that point. Uh, you know, I knew the life intimately well. And I also knew that things were starting to cave in because Giuliani started to use the racketeering laws very effectively. And I had just escaped a major indictment with uh, Giuliani that had I been convicted, I would have gone away forever. So, I mean, I, you know, I kind of saw the handwriting on the wall. So you knew that the the walls, as you say, were kind of collapsing in on you at the point at which you made the decision. I, I need to I need to consider something different here. Uh, that, that's not an easy thing to do because, uh, as a member of uh, La Cosa Nostra, you take a blood oath that once you get in, the only way you get out is through a body bag. How, how this could not have been a very light decision for you, realizing that not only on one hand were you facing the possibility of doing significant amount of time in jail through, you know, perhaps one of any of the indictments that, that Giuliani was chasing you after, but even if you were capable of escaping significant jail time, there was the issue of how do you just pack up and leave and say, that's it, guys, I'm done, I'm walking out of this life. That's not so easily done, is it? No, well, understand, you know, I, w I want to be clear on this. There's no uh, heroism in this for me. I, I tried to backdoor this, and what I mean by this is that, you know, I had a plan after beating all those four indictments, uh, because I became such a major, major target, every year they were indicting me again. And so the feds in the Eastern District of New York, Brooklyn, indicted me uh, on this major uh, racketeering case again. And uh, my plan was to take a plea, do a few years in prison. I was under the old law, not the new law today where there's no more parole. I thought I'd do a few years in prison. I had leverage because I had beat them so many times. They wanted to get a conviction on me. Uh, I was uh, had the ability to pay them a huge fine. And I said, listen, I'll, I'll take a plea. I'll do a couple of years in prison. I'll marry Camille. I'll move out to the West Coast. When I get out of prison, I'll have parole and probation and you're restricted. You're not allowed to meet with uh, anybody that has a felony conviction or is alleged to be an organized crime. So I figured I can use that as an excuse, stay out on the West Coast, and maybe after 10 or 12 years, they'll just kind of forget about me. I never uh, planned at that point to renounce my oath and make a big deal that I was walking away. I just was kind of quietly wait, hoping that, uh, you know, enough of my own guys would have their own problems. They'd just forget about me. So there was no heroism in that. I wasn't being a, doing a heroic thing by walking away from a bad life. I want to make that clear. You know, it wasn't until I was put into a, a circumstance, you know, put into a situation where I had to make a decision whether to renounce my life or not. And at that point, uh, I did. And it was a it was a heavy decision, uh, Craig. I 
I labored over it, and I, I, you know, because, look, I was going against who I was. I was going against the blood oath that I took. I was going against, uh, you know, my father, um, you know, and it was very, very difficult. I mean, I'd go to sleep at night, you know, walking away. I'd wake up staying in. I really labored over it. It was, it was tremendously uh, difficult for me. Was your dad still alive at this time? Yeah, my dad's still alive now. So he, he was there throughout all of this. And, um, you know, when I when it did become public that I was walking away, and again, I didn't make an announcement, hey, I'm walking away. It just happened to become very public because I was high profile. And, you know, Life Magazine wrote it up. It, it shot back to New York like a rocket. I was in jail at the time. And, you know, all heck broke loose at that point. My, my boss, uh, Carmine Persico, he put an immediate contract on my life and and unfortunately my father had to go along with it because when you propose somebody into that lifestyle if they go bad so to speak you're responsible for them so my father had to go along with it and uh, you know because everybody thought if I was renouncing the life that I was going to cooperate and become a witness that's the normal thing that people do when they when they renounce the life Uh, but I never intended to do that but uh, nobody believed me and there's a lot of reasons why they didn't believe me because there was a lot of stuff going on you know the FBI was putting a tremendous amount of pressure on me <clears throat> you know they told me that uh, you know there's contracts all over the place I'm a dead man they were getting word from their informants they had to put me in the witness protection program they locked me down in prison they they gave everybody all the signs that I was cooperating and so uh, nobody believed that I wouldn't um, and so I had a, I had a lot of trouble <laughs> putting it mildly what, what was your dad's reaction to all of this I mean you had followed in his, in his footsteps clearly as you mentioned from the get go Michael he didn't want you to follow in the life and once you did you're, you're in there had to have been a sit down conversation at some point and where he told you Michael you can't do this you know he didn't uh, because I was in jail when this all came out and then he went back into prison on a, on a parole violation because he had been out on parole so uh, he sent messages to me, like, what are you doing? You know, and uh, I sent messages back, I'm not going to hurt anybody. That's all I told him. I never said that I was not walking away, but I said, I'm not going to hurt anybody. Don't believe what you're hearing. And I think that he he took that to, uh, I, I think he believed that. He took that to heart. Um, but again, he, he didn't know the extent of what I was doing. So it, it was difficult because it was hard to communicate when we're both in prison. I mean, that was that's rough. But, uh, you know, he was very upset. I mean, he, he let it be known that he was very upset. And I actually had an encounter in prison with somebody that had left him in another prison. And, um, you know, it told me my dad's feelings. And it was ugly because I got very upset with the guy in the prison. We always had a major altercation. But... Uh, you know, it was calmed down after that. But, you know, this, this, the bottom line, this was a lot of trouble for me. A, a lot of trouble. In that jail cell, you were sentenced and served seven years. You had a lot of time to think. You had relationship with Cammy, who you mentioned was a strong believer. Um, you have reached a pivot point within your life. You've made the decision to walk out of the life of crime. But then the question comes down to walk out of and into what? At what point did you begin seriously exploring the claims of Christ? Well, again, you know, I had no idea what I was going to do and how I was going to overcome this once I got out of prison. Um, 
But what happened is I got out after five years, um, and because I had a 10-year sentence. I, I got out after five, and that was just about the maximum at that time that I could have served. I was on parole for 13 months, and it was, without a doubt, the worst time of my life. I mean, I'm basically dodging bullets. Um, I, I couldn't, it was hard for me to earn a living. The feds were putting so much pressure on me to become a witness, and uh, it, it was just, it was bad. It was really tough for, for me and my wife. I mean, that poor girl, every time I walked out of the house, she was afraid I was going to get killed because the FBI had put it in her mind that, uh, you know, I was in a lot of trouble because they were trying to pressure her into getting me to, you know, cooperate also. So it was rough. And after 13 months, um, they had enough of my dance with them, so to speak. And I violated my parole. They uh, they put me back in a cell. They they took all my assets. Money. They said they were going to indict me on another racketeering case. And and um, long story short, they threw me in that cell that night. And uh, it was without a doubt, Craig, the worst night of my life. It was it was the only time in my life that I have ever ever experienced hopelessness, which I will say is probably the worst emotion that anybody can ever feel. I mean, it comes along with grief, but it's just. You know, there's no way out of a horrible situation that you're in. You feel like you're going to lose everything that was dear to you, my wife, my kids, my freedom, everything. And it was it was a tough night. And, uh, you know, it was that night that uh, I've told the story so many times uh, that a prison guard, you know, slipped the Bible through my uh, the slot in my door. I was in the hole because he looked at me and he, he thought I needed some help. Um, and, um, you know, I must have I must have looked that way. I don't know, because I was laying on the cot. But, uh, you know, and it was that night that I started my encounter with Jesus. Now, I, I had been introduced to him through my wife and my mother-in-law. I had even accepted him, but I accepted Jesus then uh, the same way I would go to confession as a Catholic. Oh, forgive my sins, great, and I'll move on. There was no surrender to him. There was no relationship with him. It was really self-serving when I, when I first came to him as a Christian and, and not as a Catholic. So, but it was that night um, that I had my first encounter, and, and it went on for 29 months and seven days. They kept me locked in that hole, and uh, that was when uh, my faith became uh, as solid as it could be during that time, because uh, I can't even begin to tell you how many times, how often I read my Bible, how thoroughly I read it. I had several books sent in, not only on Christianity, but on every faith, because, you know, I, I really wanted to be sure. I mean, I had made a couple of bad decisions in my life, and if eternity was real, I wanted to know if Christianity was really the way to go. I mean, there's a lot of other faiths you can cling to. And so I had my wife send me in books on Mormonism and Judaism and uh, Buddhism and every other faith, because I had nothing but time on my hands. 24-7, you're locked in a 6 by 8 cell. There's not much to do. And I really did a, a, a thorough search, and I just came away, you know, that the, the evidence was uh, was irrefutable to me, that uh, the Bible is God's Word, and that Jesus is my Savior. And, and uh, I came out of there believing that with all my heart, not knowing where it was going to take me. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no idea how I was going to survive or what job I was going to get or what my future was going to be. I had no idea, and, uh, you know, things started from there. God's plan, I think, started uh, on my outside life from that point. 
With us today is Michael Frenzese. His life depicted in a new film. The new film is called God the Father. We'll come back to more of our conversation with Michael Frenzese as this edition of Lifeline continues. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.